Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards a hopeful future. The episode you are about to hear was recorded during our live event in November of 2023 and is part of our series on the humanities of artificial intelligence. This series was awarded an action grant by Indiana Humanities and received support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you for listening. So we are here to talk about AI and the nature of truth. And I've only got uh, James up here with me, but I know we have lots of AI experts in the audience and lots of curious people. Um, so welcome. And let's start, James, by having you introduce yourself. So my name is James McGrath. I'm a professor here in Indianapolis at Butler University. Uh, my Main field is religious studies and have worked particularly on things to do with New Testament, early Christianity, but also teach courses on things like religion and science fiction. And that started out as a side interest, and it really has become a whole other major thing that I work on and do a lot about. Uh, but have an interest in the intersection of religion and science as well, and have actually been collaborating with my colleague, Ankur Gupta, who's in the audience uh, and who was speaking yesterday and is speaking again tomorrow. Uh, he's in computer science. I'm in the humanities and exploring things to do with computer science and ethics, AI, the kinds of things I gather you're interested in since you came through that door. Indeed. So, you know, I, I asked you this, we talked about this on the podcast earlier this year. What is a theologian doing talking about AI? So talk about how they're connected. Right. Uh, part of the answer to why I specifically, me, talk about these things, uh, you could probably tell I'm a geek. I find this stuff interesting. Uh, and that's probably gets to the heart of it, I think, more than anything else I might say. Uh, I will say, since oftentimes subjects like religious studies are perceived in a particular way that I'm not here, and I'm certainly not here on my own uh, on this panel, uh, because there's some sense that religious studies will give us a clear-cut, simple answer to the question you know, about this whole truth thing that's the other part of the title. But as somebody who's interested in science, as somebody who's interested in science education, uh, who's aware that particular interpretations of the Bible, shall we say, impact how people respond to science, uh, whether they support or go on the opposition against good science education. Uh, it's important to me from that perspective. But it's also of interest to me because oftentimes science and this thing that's in the other part of my department, which is a department of philosophy and religious studies, uh, philosophy, ethics, often the discussions about that, I mean, they certainly happen about science, about computer science, about AI, they don't always happen in a way that there's actual conversation with those who are actually working on the technology, working on the innovations. And so I'm very interested in bridging those gaps. As somebody who clearly likes bringing diverse things together, I like pursuing those conversations and seeing if I can help make them happen. But at the very least, think about these things myself, because if nothing else, they make for really, really good science fiction stories, don't they? Right? When we explore these intersections. Yes, and we will talk a little about your science fiction story in just a bit. But so let's get some definitions out here. So what is truth? That's an easy <laughs> question at 10 a.m. on Saturday morning, right? Yes. Uh, there's a famous instance of that question being asked in the New Testament, uh, some of you may be aware of. Uh, you'd think that religious studies, having at least 2,000 years course, not doing the modern academic thing with religious studies, but you'd think we might have a handle on that. And actually, it's really rather challenging to answer. But even when we can answer it, it's a challenging thing to ask an artificially intelligent system of any sort to uh, respond to. And so I think it was very close to the end of yesterday's panel on artificial intelligence, where one or more of the panelists pointed out that you know, there's this need to specify everything that you want an AI system to do. And one of those things has to be, the content needs to be true. Right? It needs to be accurate. And if you don't specify that, you won't get it. And I was immediately thinking, even if you specify it, you may not get it. And I say that not as a, a critique of AI, 
you may be aware of this, but we have some of the same problems getting humans to produce answers that correspond to truth. And so if we tried defining truth in the most basic sense, we'd probably say corresponds to reality. Something along those lines is a very, very basic definition that fits a lot of different uh, areas. The question of whether there can be different types of truth, right? We, we read literature and we find it, it speaks to us and is meaningful to us in all kinds of ways that are hard to pin down. We can say that it's truth that we think human lives are inherently valuable. And that's a different sort of answer than if you do a chemical analysis of a human being. And this vat that contains the same chemicals, chemistry itself doesn't answer the question of why is one more valuable than the other. Hopefully we're all on the same page that one is more valuable than the other. Uh, but unless an AI is capable of making those distinctions, then, yeah, and a lot of that is going to be need to be pre-programmed. When we talk about machine learning, right? it's machines looking at data sets from the things that human beings do or the things that human beings write. And so I'm sure that sooner or later we're going to end up talking about things like ChatGPT and BARD and those kinds of things. But the reason it does what it does so effectively is it's emulating human speech. You may have noticed that it doesn't always speak the truth. And it, it has no concept of anything, but it has no mechanism for discerning what is true. And so the question of how we even get something like a less robust artificial intelligence, let's say the, the thing that gives you the Google results or the things that gives you the search results when you search in a library catalog. If you wanted to prioritize stuff that corresponds to reality, well, what's the mechanism? Right? What are the criteria? And especially given that human beings often struggle with agreeing on this, it's not surprising that we haven't got an AI that either can be pre programmed so as to provide these sorts of answers to everyone's satisfaction, or can learn by imitating humans, because humans are struggling with this. And I see a hand in the back. Question was, in response to my reference to uh, AI and literature, AI and art, the fact that there might be different, different types of truth out there and uh, that AI may be relevant to and interact with all of them. And this was specifically about AI art and whether AI-generated images can be art. And the question, what is art? Yeah, I'd rather go back to what is truth. That was easier, I think. Um, <laughs> but I think the, the short answer is that we've reached the point where we'd say anything can be art. right? And so... The question is, what's its status, right? I think that when it comes to artificial intelligence, what's really interesting is that artificial intelligence does not have the capacity for aesthetics, right? For appreciating art, right? Can it generate images? Certainly. Uh, if letting your cat walk through paint and then walk on a canvas can be art, right? And it was not directly created by the artist, but it is... And I'm not suggesting that this will actually sell very well. So if you are a budding artist, I think you probably will find there are better ideas out there. Uh, but what are the criteria? Right? I mean, an AI certainly can generate some very interesting images and often takes me by surprise by what it produces. Um, does the fact that the human beings may have six fingers and one of them is incredibly long. Um, I am thinking of a very specific example when I was playing around with this. Does that invalidate it? Well, could be bad art, but that doesn't mean it's not art, right? Uh, and there are plenty of impressionistic types of artwork where you'd say, well, the correspondence to reality is not at the level of right, precision, you know, like photographic precision or something like that. And so maybe this is the point which I should add that one of the reasons why I find this interesting is not so much that I think by joining in this conversation, I'm going to get us more quickly to the answer, but because I think it really does help us think about these things in interesting ways, right? What is truth, right? When we bring AI into the picture, it helps us think about that in interesting ways. What is art, right? Asking what is, you know, and what is ethical? Right? 
as we started to see yesterday, and as I think is going to come up again several times, probably, uh, before we're done with Starbase Indy this year, the very act of trying to think, could a machine learn it? Could a machine produce it? Could a machine be more ethical than human beings? Um, what would that entail? Even if we don't get answers, I think it helps us explore the questions in interesting ways. So the short answer is, sure, why not? Uh, but the yeah, anything could be art, so why not that? Uh, the interesting thing, I, I think, is you know, why, why do we feel the way we feel about it um, is, I think, one of the things that can help us think about. What is it? You know, is it just the fact that it is derivative? Well, I've seen a lot of derivative art. Um, I've read a lot of derivative literature. Uh, I'm sure I've produced some on more than one occasion. And so that alone presumably can't be the, the reason. And so I think even the very fact of asking, you know, what, why do we want humans involved in our art leads us to interesting avenues of exploration. Come up here, talk in the mic. <laughs> if you can, I, I won't force you to, but I'm, you, I'm going to force to. I should, I should have made you sit on this panel. <laughs> Hi. Um, so I have a question about uh, truth. Are there aspects of truth that are, in your view, inherently computable? And what might those aspects be? The question whether ethics are compatible. So Ankur is either throwing me a, a, a softball or hoping I will go beyond, you know, go, go past the point where we hit a roadblock and weren't able to get any further yet. Um, and he may be hoping for a bit of both. Uh, yeah, I, I know him well enough to know that um, on some level there is some something mischievous at work here. Oh. Definitely. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Uh, he said it's not a non-mischievous question, and that um, actually may may make me rethink the whole way I approach answering it. But one of the things that I brought into the discussion was the Kobayashi Maru scenario, which I know is familiar to many and perhaps everyone in this audience. And the reason I brought that into our work on AI ethics, as we thought about what's involved in programming a driverless car to behave ethically, and there are two aspects of that. One is, can a machine actually deduce what is ethical? Right? Can a machine can machine learning produce something that corresponds to ethics? But also, can we program our ethics into a machine so that we'll follow them consistently? Because if we can, it will implement them much more effectively than we will. Right In that moment when we're frozen, we have to swerve, but we don't know which way to swerve, and our minds are not working fast enough. The, the AI, if it knows what it's supposed to do, will do it, and we'll do it much more quickly than we could, and we'll be happy. Um, if we're not happy with the outcome, we will complain about computers and AIs in general, even though we probably would have done no better if we had been in control. Right? But that is one of our um, human emotional responses. But the Kobayashi Maru scenario is really about prioritizing two different ethical aims. Right? And that's one of the things that we often bump up against. Right? In principle, right, so institutions of higher education have been wrestling with this and sometimes falling afoul of this often of late. In principle, freedom of speech is a good thing. We want to maximize that wherever possible. In principle, inclusivity and making everyone feel welcome is important to us. I think we're all aware that some people can use their freedom of speech in a way that makes others not just feel unwelcome, but feel threatened so that they then no longer can be included to the same extent. Um, and certainly they, they may persist in being present, but there isn't a welcome and there certainly isn't an egalitarian access to participating in whatever's happening. And so these two things bump up against one another. And ultimately, we find we have to say, okay, well, not all free speech because we want to make every, sure everyone feels welcome. Or sorry, but we value free speech in and of itself so much that we'll just have to find other ways of navigating this problem that it's, sometimes people will say hateful things. If we actually articulate which of those is most important when the two come into contact with one another, we might still be criticized for our prioritization, but I think we'll have less criticism than when we do off-the-cuff ones where we're at, that are inconsistent in this case versus that case and things like that. So the Kobayashi Maru scenario is exactly that sort of thing. Ship and rescue in the neutral zone, we want to rescue the ship. Not start a war by not going in the neutral zone, we want to do that too. When the two are in conflict, 
Which do we prioritize? And if AIs were flying ships, you just tell it which one to prioritize, and it would do it, right? And it would either go after the ship and start the war because it knew that's what we—that's where our values are. Or, and you put a human in there, and it's—you know—it's like, what do we do? You reprogram the computer because you can't. You just hate this scenario. This making you choose between these two things that you'd like to—you'd like to do both. And an AI, if we could decide what we're going to prioritize, could actually do that better. Where it really becomes difficult is to quantify, right? So if you have a seventy-three percent chance that there'll be only one fatality but no other injuries versus a 22% chance that there will be uh, several people who might uh, lose mobility uh, for the rest of their lives but no fatalities. I don't want to do that math. I don't want to make that decision. I'm not even sure that it is mathematically, you know, I don't think human ethics work in that mathematical sort of way, right? But maybe we do and it's just, it's happening beneath the surface. But at the very least, that's what we'd need to get an, a driverless car or autonomous vehicle to compute in order to know what's the ethical thing to do here. And then it'll do it. I'll probably do it better than we would in most circumstances. And so I think that ethics is inherently computable in the sense that ultimately it's about prioritization. It's about calculation. It's about doing these things. Whether a machine can actually deduce what is ethical. That's a much more interesting question because a lot of people think about ethics as something where, again, somebody who um, does the kind of stuff that I in my field study uh, swoops in and gives a divine pronouncement and says, here's what's ethical, and then people just implement that. But if we compare ethical systems, we see that actually ethics is a human product, right? And we largely agree on some of the big things, right? The stuff we, the stuff that gets really dodgy is, you know, how much do you say please and thank you? And in one culture, it's sounds like you're being a little bit, you're groveling, and the other, it's you know not being quite enough and things like that. So I think the whole question of what is ethical is a, a much more difficult one because we haven't worked it out for humans yet. And so we don't know how, it, we don't even know what machine learning would look like. But I think there's fascinating stuff to be done by computer scientists to take, let's say, human ethical systems and model them. And I know you're working on that and very excited by that. To do the machine learning thing and say, okay, you know, ask a chatbot that had access to the whole of the internet, but maybe is linguistically robust enough that's drawing on things from multiple cultures and languages and ask it, what's the ethical thing to do in this situation? And see, from the total sum of all that human product, what does that look like? Uh, I think there's some interesting stuff that would come out of that. Um, it, it also might sound like the lowest common denominator and very trite. And so, um, yes, there's a particular moment of seeking wisdom from the holodeck in um, a particular Lower Decks episode that comes to mind there where uh, you finally reach the the god that speaks with the voice of ChatGPT and it does not provide uh, satisfying revelations. If you haven't seen that, you might be interested. Um, Say, so you had your hand up first. If you would come up and ask the question in the mic, that way we don't have to restate. Um, so this this is going back a bit to the art. Um, currently, I believe that all the artistic models of AI and the machine learning systems are all currently morally and creatively bankrupt due to the fact of currently they're operating within a realm of where capital is in importance. And so how they're training currently is by using people's artwork that arguably is of a denominative value and is translating it into this realm where it is free for all, which I understand is great. I am a, a creative myself, and I understand that at some point these will be useful, but, well, money is still a subject, and especially within the AI field, really, they're all bankrupt in the moral sense due to that. Um, and we're not really going to find an AI system, in my opinion, that is going to be moralistically correct even in a car model because you you're arguing against the capitalist nature of our current society and like you said the multiple people injured and having low mobility in a capitalist environment it is directly cheaper to kill one person because you can pay that out where no one else is injured where if you injure five people it is a higher capital payout 
but it is a lower cost of human life. Yes, um, thank you for sharing. Yeah, thank you. Several important points, because the whole question of how you insure autonomous vehicles and and who gets sued if there's a problem, uh, I think one of the things that we need to start thinking about, and this, uh, I I hope we'll explore this in another panel later today that's also about AI and ethics and the question of sentience, but in between that future in which you have the question, can commander data be a person and have rights and things like that, and where we are now, we're going to have machines that at least resemble something like animal intelligence. Right? And the owner you know, or somebody has a certain responsibility. Right? And if you tell the animal to attack someone, then you may be directly guilty. If you take all precautions to make sure this animal is uh, behaving safely and then it does something despite your best efforts, then you may not be liable in the same way. Right? You certainly won't be liable in the same way as if you told it to attack. And so the question of how insurance and capitalism is going to deal with this um, is, is an important one. And I, I want to, on one level, assent to the claim that capitalism corrupts and ruins everything that is uh, connected with it. On the other hand, yeah, somebody who writes books and then they're published by a publisher and it's part of this capitalist thing. And many artists have managed to, you know, uh, not make a living doing art, or many people writing have managed to not make a living, but some people do, and so don't want to suggest that absent the uh, actual collective choice to reject capitalism and get something else, that those who work within that system are necessarily um, compromised in some way, that the only way to be uh, ethical is to uh, make no money by doing your art or writing. Uh, that may be, and it may be that I'm wrong about that, but uh, that's my my instinct. The question of whether by utilizing existing art or existing literature to create new new images, new text, AI is doing something like plagiarism, um, I want to say no for the simple reason that the way that people learn to paint or to write is by looking at painting, by reading others. And so if it's creating something that's genuinely new, even if it's creating something that's genuinely new in the style of such and such, that in itself is not plagiarism. And that in itself is not theft. I think the reason why we want to go there is because that seems like that might just provide a way to say, okay, stop doing this so that uh, it's not infringing on what creators do. Um, And unfortunately, it doesn't seem like, I don't think that argument is going to ultimately hold water. Um, I think it's more the case that just as with autonomous vehicles, with other we need to figure out what we want, right? And it's not a given that just because we can produce vehicles that will drive faster than the vehicles that are currently on the road, that we put engines in them that make that possible, right? We have reached some collective agreement about appropriate speeds in um, all normal scenarios. You can buy a vehicle that is customized for other uses. The fact that it is something that's technically possible doesn't mean we always go there. And it really is bringing us back to that ethical question. What do we want? How do we want things to be used? Some people will use things, just like some people will, if they don't have a way of watching the Doctor Who special that comes out later today um, and seeing it in time you know, because they are not in the UK, don't have uh, whatever, uh, may find another way of getting hold of it, um, shall we say. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know what I mean, right? And people will do that. And it does have some impact on the income of those who are trying to make a living through creation and things like that. And we, we need to navigate that as societies. And so far, Authors, publishers, other, you know, musicians have managed to find ways of, of monetizing, have also found ways of adapting to new technologies. But it's a constant struggle. And I don't think the AI technology in and of itself changes the fact that we have serious issues about what humans do with technology and through technology. And that ultimately that's where, where we need to figure this out. Jordan. So um, l- less directly about AI, but more about... Uh, 
privacy education and people who produce those things. Could you speak to the current state of ethics education in engineering departments and computer science departments? What's going well? What's lacking? How things might want to change over the next few years? Yes, uh, that's a great question. Uh, and I'm inclined to ask the, the one computer scientist I see here to uh, chime in. I hope he'll at least tell me if I'm, I'm getting this wrong. I think that probably every program has at least one required course in such and such and ethics. I think, you wanna, <laughs> And what? he's making an eh kind of yeah. um, gesture with his Mo hands. And mostly, and it's, and, <laughs> at most, is that right? At most one? Is that, or at, at least one? one yeah. Okay. At most right. one, yes. Yeah. I wanted to give them the benefit of that and say there, there might be some programs that actually require you to take a second one or something like that. No, really not. Okay. Uh, that was me being optimistic. <laughs> Lots of people shaking their head um, no in the yeah. audience. Yeah. Uh, that, it's an yeah. It's and so, like, okay, there you go. It's available. Yes. They just right. don't have right. to. Yeah. Right. Yes. So, I mean, I think what's, I think the, the key thing is that there's not really a lot of conversation happening between people who do something like philosophical ethics and people who work in computer science or engineering. There's often not a lot of conversation happening necessarily between either of those two and the people who write science fiction that often actually really helps us explore these things. Because narrative, turning it into story, actually helps us think about, okay, where might this be? Right. Well, lots of people might die. Right. Well, if I can actually take you through a compelling narrative of that apocalypse, I think you're going to feel it more than if I say, yeah, that could... 99% of humanity might die. It's like, okay, this is just, just a number. We don't feel that the same way. you know. It's, and what's that number based on? How do we know? You know things like so I think there needs to be more. I think there's definitely a need for more. But I imagine that if everyone... Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure what the best way to go about it is. You don't necessarily need to take coursework in something in order to get a, a sense of this. And I think that often the people in philosophy and ethics are equally failing to grasp what actually computer science does. I, I mean, there's a lot that's being written by ethicists about something like ChatGPT, where it seems clear that they don't really understand what this thing is and how it works and stuff like that. Does that seem fair for my computer scientist friend? You'd say yes. Okay. Yes. Will you please come speak in the please could just come speak in the mic. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Just just sit. Just yeah. sit. Just come. Yes. Just sit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We've just pulled Dr. Ankur Kupta up to the yes. table so he can talk into a mic for us. I'm sorry, I didn't put him on the panel to start with. I'm sorry. I did not intend for this to happen. Um I I think the part of the uh the conversation is that the way a computer scientist would think about ethics, ethical issues, truth, and these kinds of things um, is very different than the way that a philosopher or a sociologist or somebody else might think about the same question. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's that each group doesn't know a lot about the other group. So, you know, philosophers may not know how the technology works, but the average computer scientist doesn't know what deontology is either. So, you know, there's there's a there's a, a, a sense in which both groups are talking past one another. Um, and it's it's rare to find the person that can talk about both credibly um, without some kind of a gap. It's a very difficult thing to do. Um, and how that interacts with current state-of-the-art technology um, is a very challenging problem. So I would say that that's... That's probably the biggest, um, you know, uh, barrier to this conversation. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I think ultimately the, the key point was that in order to have real engagement between something like computer science and ethics, you need not just conversation between people who do one and don't really understand the other, but you need people who have a, at least a decent and maybe a really f profound understanding of both. Is that a fair restatement? Uh, and I agree completely. Yeah. Let's see. Let's see, I think you had your hand up and...
wearing a red shirt should not, you know, you, you, your, your life might be at risk, but you should still get to ask your question. Hopefully I'll make it through the question before. Ah, no. Um, so two-parter question on first part on basically what you were just talking about. The idea of the people who make AI obviously have to have a certain level of education. They have to have certain status in order to, sorry, in order to build and create the quote-unquote ethics within AI. Do you feel that that gives a very limited sense of ethics because of where those people have to come from and their mindset and therefore it's not necessarily representing all people in their ethics yes <laughs> yeah. 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 Hey, simple yeah. answers. i think i'll just say i'll, I'll maybe say a little more than yes but yes uh, the human beings don't agree there was so it came up yesterday that you know, about whether an autonomous car should be altruistic or sort of egotistical, should you know, preserve the passengers at all costs or maximize the, you know, minimize the number of fatalities, even if one of the, the few is inside the vehicle. And not every human being agrees that you, know, you should put others first, you know, even if, let's say, they're at fault, right, getting in the way and doing something, right? So just quantifying how many lives are lost doesn't say, well, who's guilty and maybe they you know, maybe they deserve that. And maybe you can have facial recognition where it's like, well, that person is a terrible criminal anyway. So let's just, um, you know, if, if, we, if somebody has to die in this scenario, let's just um, aim the car towards them, right? Um, and so there are all kinds of scenarios, but we don't agree. You know, we, we agree on the value of human life, but you'll see people make very, very different decisions beyond that, right? Because there's, there are things like group loyalty where it's like, no, I, it's not that I hate all foreigners. I just think that if we let them in, then the economy will, you know, it'll be to the detriment of my people and stuff like you know. And so it's couched in the language of altruism, even though some of us would say it's, you know, we think ethically the, a different choice should be made. And be, unless we can agree on what to program the thing to do, then it's not going to do something that everybody is happy with. So, and there was a second, yeah, the second part. part. Yeah. yeah. So do you think there's a certain point in which building AI to make ethical decisions for us, that it takes away the ability for people to make their own ethical decisions? Because it's hard to build your own sense of ethics without being put in the situation and building those chemicals and neuron pathways to make decisions. So if AI is doing it for us more and more, do you think we'll lose our ability to do it? Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question. And... <clears throat> I almost want to write two stories, right, and explore the yes and the no answer, right, because I think both could be interesting. Uh, does something like, you know, will something like ChatGPT, does something like Grammarly cause people to not learn grammar? Or does it cause people to actually see what good grammar looks like and maybe pick it up from, you know, if we have, yeah. So what's mandated regarding, let's say, speed limits, right, or the fact that you can't, you know, you, you, you can't just drive on the shoulder, things like that. People would do it if there were not restrictions in place. There will be some mechanism whereby it's imposed so that the car simply can't do this, right? And you might have to, it might be possible to get, you know, like send a, send a, send a radio, you know, send a, a message to a hospital saying that, you know, we have an injured person here and it'll send a code that will allow it to go above the speed limit or something like that. You know, we need those kinds of things too, potentially. But on the whole, if all of the vehicles are following the speed limit and the number of fatalities lessens. We might learn from that and say, hey, you know what? Maybe we should have been doing this all along, even when we were in control of the vehicles. And so I can see a potential, you know, no, like, yes, yes, we will lose the skills. Just like when people read less and write less, they become less adept at both reading and writing. Or we could have a situation in which we see enough of the implementation of things that we might not do ourselves, just left our own devices, pun intended, then, you know, we might actually say, yeah, this is actually all this, this, you know, fewer fatalities from road, this is pretty good. I could get used to this. So that's, that's not a clear answer because we, we don't know. I think, I, I think we don't know yet. Um, and the, the answer that I hope might be true <laughs> may not turn out to be the one that's true. Um, uh, you haven't asked a question yet, so if you'll come up and then Jordan and then I forget your name in the back. 
Oh, you did ask the first question. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. come back but and you, ask the ask It's your turn again, to Mike probably, and, right? Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'll just make a, a quick point that actually I was just hearing about the, it was like the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration had just put a recommendation. I mean, I, it's, they're not the ones who do that regulation. It's, I don't remember which government agency it is, but they had recommended to that one to automatically on new cars put a speed limit to 100 miles an hour. And possibly that, that those would be some of the questions we would we would be thinking about would be, hey, if there's an emergency situation or let's say there's a flood in certain area, then cars would be allowed to exceed that 100 mile an hour. But otherwise, or maybe in a racetrack or something, but in all, pretty much most circumstances, it'd be like 100 mile an hour fixed speed. We have some of these restraints already, technologically as well as you know, legally, and so yeah. I mean, cur- <clears throat> sorry, currently cars actually are on I mean, current. <clears throat> sorry, currently cars actually are already throttled um, to 130, I think. And they're throttled mechanically so that I don't think you can buy a domestic car like that. Um, this is why a lot of people want to buy old police cars, because they're not throttled. So um, <clears throat> when I'm thinking about AI systems, I'm, I'm generally thinking about mathematics and fundamentally symbol manipulation. And that seems divorced from the notion of truth fundamentally. I would take it that's probably not your perspectives. And I'm curious why and where the divergence yeah. is. Thank you. And this may not be getting at what you're hoping for. So if it's not, please ask a follow-up question. But I've been hoping that we'd talk a bit more about this whole thing of you know, searching for reliable source of information, what, ch- what chatbots produce, and why it often does not correspond to truth and things like that. Yes, yes. So, yes, yes. Okay, yeah. good, good. I've got some encouragement and, here at least. And, and, um, and, and if it's not, you'll come yeah. and, and you'll come I, and I do, ask. I, do, right. I also wanted us yeah. to get to that. So I've shifted in my teaching uh, over the past decade or so um, from focusing on content delivery to teaching the skills of finding reliable source of information and navigating sources. Because in the future, you know, students are not going to say, oh, yes, Dr. McGrath in that class, I remember there's something. You know, they're going to pull out a device or pull up a holographic menu or whatever it is that they're doing with the, the technology at that point and look something up. And so the key is, do they know how to discern what is reliable, what is factual? And that's actually really rather difficult. And they're often inclined to rely on AI systems. And by that, I don't mean ChatGPT. I mean something like Google Scholar. But you can find, let's say, young earth creationist materials popping up in Google Scholar. Why? Because how do you automate finding of scholarly sources? Look for stuff with footnotes. And so you tell it to do that. And it does. And even before there were AI systems that could fall afoul of that, young earth creationists were creating their own journals and publishing things in them that um, advocate for their views, but make it look like scholarship, right? You have this thing called the Creation Museum. Um, It's not a museum by the standards of what was historically meant by a museum. Uh, There are problems with what was historically meant by a museum too, but that's a different subject, although related. And so... Getting students to navigate this is challenging. Helping them to understand that, you know, there's this thing that we talk about in philosophy you know, the, uh, and in other areas, the um, appeal to authority, which is a fallacy, right? The fact that somebody is an expert in something doesn't mean they're right. right? And in fact, you can find people with relevant qualifications who will advocate for uh, all kinds of things, right? You'll find everything from you know, climate change denial, you'll find Holocaust denial, you'll find all kinds of stuff. And you can almost always find somebody with a PhD who will speak in favor of this out or the other. And so the need to look for the consensus, right? And, you know, which doesn't mean everybody agrees because the way ac- academic progress is made is by trying out new ideas, right? That's why you constantly see these science headlines that say, you know, faster than light neutrinos. And then 
hopefully you pay enough attention to science news that you see later. Oh, no, sorry, wrong. Yeah. But people sometimes get disillusioned because they're like, well, the headlines, it's like, yeah, they, somebody had a result. And then the rest of the process is that it's evaluated and it's discussed. And, and if, there's a, if most experts agree, because we have this drive to disagree and you know, publish new ideas, the evidence is probably pretty strong. It doesn't guarantee we're right, but that's probably as close of a correspondence to reality and thus as true as we're going to get. If the experts don't agree, probably means the evidence doesn't point clearly to a view. And so uh, whether that means you should just pick whichever one you like of those, the three main views, maybe, right? Um, if one is held by you know, a strong majority, yeah. but we don't actually teach those skills to human beings. And so it's not surprising that we're finding difficulty in conveying these things to others um, and to automated systems. When it comes to something like ChatGPT, you know, I mean, I was thinking about whether there was a machine learning approach to you know, teaching driverless cars where just get it to imitate the average of what cars do in this place, right? And could that actually be a, a more effective way of get, than trying to get it to you know, recognize stop signs and do other things? Um, it probably needs to do that too, obviously. But uh, when you have something like a chatbot that is taking from this vast data set of text and it's detecting patterns in it often right more often than not it will generate text that is not just coherent human speech but actually contains information in it. and that's true to such a significant extent that a lot of people have said hey i've asked the ai and here's what it said and they think they can rely on that and yet what it's doing is it's imitating human speech through those patterns and so when you ask about a, something that there aren't a lot of patterns to go on, you get some very interesting and sometimes very <laughs> amusing results. And even when you ask for something very specific, so you're like, I need this kind of content, let's say a reference, right? some sort of source that justifies the claims being made in the text is generating, what does it do? Well, it does exactly what it's been designed to do. It mixes and matches from patterns in speech, so you get something that looks like a URL, but it doesn't go anywhere. You get something that might actually be an author's name and the actual title of somebody else's book and the subtitle of somebody else's book. And those things that are there in the patterns of speech are put together into this because it doesn't know anything, but it doesn't know what a, a reference is. It doesn't know what a source is. It knows that when people talk about this or ask for this, they get things that look like this. And then it shuffles among the patterns to produce something new, which is never going to give you the actual title of something. In fact, it's almost going to guarantee that you're not going to get that because it's designed to produce something new and not just reproduce what's already there. And so there's this disconnect between the desire to have something that's even better than the next generation you know, voice interaction computer, something that would actually sound like a person. And we can do that at the expense of getting the inf actual information that you need, right, when you're in this command situation, asking the computer something when you're on the bridge. And so there's that disconnect there. So one of my favorite recent ones, because I teach a course on the Bible and music, um, and I tell students to look for references to the Bible, allusions to the Bible and popular music as one of the activities. And so I was curious what would happen if they asked ChatGPT either to say, hey, this could get you started, or hey, here's what you should watch out for. And so uh, one of the ones that gave me was the the Ballad of John and Yoko, uh, because apparently that has something to do with the story in the Bible about John the Baptist and Yoko. Most of, most of, and most of you will know that that's not what the song's about. So, um, so I think that that's one of the challenges. I, so my biggest concern as far as the AI apocalypse that everybody's worried about, it's not that ChatGPT is, you know, almost sentient and is going to you know, take over the world. It's that people are going to think these systems are ready to do stuff that they're not ready to do and put them in charge of things. Uh, Dr. Lisa, I would very much like to hear your, uh, from the computer science piece of it. <clears throat> um, so the way I interpreted that question, um, which was roughly um, mathematical models um, are more elegant when they're simple. And yet, it seems like we have this increasingly complex thing. Um, 
I'll speak to this from a mathematical computer science point of view, and now you can see the point and counterpoint why there's such a big divide. Um, so um, generally speaking, you have the real world, and when you're trying to do some kind of computation on the real world, you cannot account for every contextual clue or every um, circumstance that exists in the real world. So what you do um, when you're trying to compute or when you're trying to do mathematics on it, you model that. In other words, you come up with a simplified way to represent the portions of the world that most relate to what you're trying to compute, and then you use that simplification. A very easy one, um, just for an example, is that the way that our eyes work is analog, if you will, but then when you digitize that image so that you can see it graphically on a computer, you have lost some of the detail and some of the clarity that the real world provides. The same thing happens in audio and, and other kinds of sources. That level of modeling, um, the more accurate it is, the more pixelation you have, the more um, close it is to the real world, the better your model is and the more uh, accurate it is. However, that's a continuum. So the closer you are to the world, the more complex the decision making is. The further away from the world you are, the more computable it is, the easier it is to compute. But the further it is from the real world, potentially. So when you think of it as a computer scientist or as a mathematician, you typically think of it as what's the most complex model that I can get away with computing? And then try to see if the decisions and the conclusions that you would draw in that model translate upward into either a more complex model or can be analyzed and interpreted by human beings to bridge the gap between the model and the reality. Um, so unfortunately, the answer to your question is um, as the problems we grapple with are less and less deterministic, in other words, they're more focused on circumstance and probability and probabilistic methods, those evaluation and prediction methods are going to necessarily become more complex and therefore less obviously elegant on the table. But the intent is to explain them well enough that you can then infer something about the way a person or an activity should happen in the real world. Um, and that gap is very difficult to bridge in general. So that's the computational answer to the same question. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, yeah, what are the natures of truth? Truth versus fact, almost. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, and, I, and also I, maybe truth sorry, versus yeah, wisdom. Here, come, come get in the mic. Yeah. I'm not yeah. going to be able to restate yeah. this with enough. Yeah. Yeah, sit down. Come sit down. Okay. Done. Sit down. Have a tribble. From the computation perspective, right, like you're, you're talking about whether or not something is maybe tractable or not, right. but it is, it is it's computable or it's not, it's knowable or it's not. Like we can, we can model that to a certain fidelity where we can answer a question about whether or not something is computable. But does that touch on like, and then we get down to a fact or a truth. But does that touch on the notion of truth that you're trying to approach? That was the, the question I was trying to ask. Yeah, and yeah, well, there's the question of narrative truth, but also, you know, what is truth in science? Right? What is truth in history? Right? Um, as somebody who does things that have to do with biblical studies and study the ancient past, the question of... You know, there's a popular usage of, you know, this discovery, this archaeological discovery proves such and such. And proof is the language of mathematics, and uh, historians try to avoid that language because it's not, you know, history is always about probability. Uh, but it's not probability we can really quantify very accurately. We can try to put a, a number on it to express our own estimation, but it's the same thing you encounter if you, it's, it's very much like the situation in a court of law. Right, where you're asking, okay, here's evidence. There's no mechanism whereby, and computer scientists will tell me if I'm wrong about this, but there's no mechanism whereby you can just take that evidence and feed it into some sort of computing system which will say guilty, not guilty. Right? This is us 
thinking about people's motives, right? Trying to say, yeah, are there other ways that this evidence could have come about that don't involve this person killing this other person or stealing this item or whatever? And so, and part of that is us trying to construct a narrative, right? And I don't know what you think of ChatGPT's uh, ability to constructing narrative. Um, it certainly does that, but uh, AI can't get at that kind of truth because it's there's an element of subjectivity even when humans are trying to get at that kind of truth, right? We are estimating, we are evaluating, we are, are, and we, even when it comes to our own decisions, there's a lot of evidence that we do things on some subconscious level and then rationalize why we did it after the fact. And so we're trying to do that with what we think other people might have done, what they might have been thinking in the moment, and I don't know that that is computable. Um, I think I do think that even there, there are probably ways that computing can help because my my sense is that there are strengths and weaknesses of human beings and of AI systems, and that when we can figure out how we can utilize these things in um, ethical ways that add their strengths to our strengths, then that's the best recipe for using them uh, for human flourishing. And and I hate to cut this off, but we are right at time. So perhaps we'll have to get you all back together on a Zoom call to do this again for the podcast. So, yeah, uh, thank you very much. Everyone in the audience with questions and the panelists are... Because this is Starbase Indie, our panelists are a little like tribbles. So by the end, we had not only Dr. James McGrath, but uh, Dr. Anka Gupta, and also Dr. Jordan Thayer, who works in this area professionally as a software engineer. Software engineer. So we got lots of great combinations. And I know other folks ask questions, but I don't happen to know their qualifications. So that's where I'll leave it. Thank you all so much. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. And thank you again to Indiana Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities for supporting our series on the humanities of artificial intelligence. Find all of the related episodes as well as transcripts and discussion guides on our website at starbaseindie.org podcasts. To find out more about what we're doing now, including our live event coming up in November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or follow us on social media at Starbase Indie. See you on the Starbase.